Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. This is Slash Home Daily for June 28th, 2017. I'm Peter Soretta. Every weekday, we bring you the most interesting news from around the world of movies and television and wrap it up with a deeper dive into the great features from SlashFilm.com. On today's show, we'll find out how Silicon Valley will deal with the departure of T.J. Miller. We'll learn about the plans for a Tremor sequel, Better Call Saul gets renewed, Will we get a Red Sun Superman movie? We'll take a look at the disappointing box office of Transformers last night and what that might mean for the future of the franchise. And finally, in our feature presentation, Rob Hunter will join us to share some of the best kids animated movies you've never seen. Before we jump into today's episode, I first wanted to thank you for listening to these test episodes uh, and answer a couple questions. Uh, we do plan on launching this podcast on iTunes and all the other podcast subscription services, but we will be doing that once we officially launch. Right now, we're recording some pilot test episodes to try to work out the kinks, figure out you know how this works, and please excuse our dust, please excuse the errors, please excuse some of the audio quality. We are, we are working this out as we go, and hopefully uh, you like it. Please continue to send your feedback to us at orfilms at gmail.com or on Twitter, DM us at slash film. Right now I have Ben Pearson, writer for slashfilm.com. Ben, are you there? Hey, how's it going, Peter? Good to have you. Uh, it's doing good, doing good. There's been a lot of TV news this past day. Silicon Valley had its fin- finale. You know, the last episode of TJ Miller, he's leaving the series. How will that show deal with his departure okay so i guess first question is is tj miller's character ehrlich bachman ever going to return to silicon valley maybe in a future season maybe in a cameo appearance something like that uh in an interview with the hollywood reporter uh miller has revealed that he will not be returning in any capacity they asked him if he would potentially change his mind about that and he's like 
no, I don't know if you've seen my work, but I don't really flip flop on stances. So I am pretty much out of the show. Um, it's like there's the, some bad blood there between him and the producers. It's really interesting because in this interview, this exit interview that he gave uh, to the Hollywood Reporter, which I would highly encourage everybody read. It's one of the most bizarre interviews that I've read in a long time. And it does seem like there's some bad blood, particularly between Miller and one of the co-showrunners of Silicon Valley, Alec Berg, who used to work on Seinfeld and a bunch of other things. Uh, Miller like openly bashes him in this episode or in this interview rather and then basically says that he doesn't like him he doesn't get along with him very well um, it's very strange and uh, you know in an age where everybody's very careful about what they say in Hollywood Miller just seems like he does not give a crap um, and that basically is his entire attitude about leaving Silicon Valley in the first place he basically is like I've got a lot of movie projects I've got a lot of stuff that I'm doing I'm leaving the show essentially because I think it's funny, because I think it's like a weird thing that I could do and maybe an unexpected thing and something that would shake the show out of its uh, cyclical nature a little bit, which I actually think is kind of a fair criticism of Silicon Valley. It's very um, up and down uh, when it comes to its narrative and removing uh, Miller's Ehrlich Bachman from the equation entirely will certainly cause a change on the show. Um, the showrunners have given a bunch of interviews talking about how they're basically starting the writing process for the upcoming fifth season, like now, like this, this coming week, basically. And they haven't fully figured out how they're going to replace uh, TJ Miller yet. They've said basically that they're not going to just slot someone else directly in as a you know, a typical replacement kind of thing. But uh, there are a ton of great performers on that show that could easily step up to the plate. Um, the show itself could maybe expand its scope a little bit more to include more of, you know, those characters, those actors that they've uh, been uh, fostering this whole time. Um, so I don't know, uh, Peter, do you watch the show? Did you see the finale? And what do you think about uh, Miller's exit? You know, I haven't, I, I watched the show, but I have yet to get, to the finale um you know he's one of the best parts of that show uh but it seems like this last season they've kind of like had to make excuses for him to be there yes they're, they're, yeah so there isn't much of a reason for that character to be involved with the story anyways but the audience loved him this interview is just one of the, it really is bizarre and you should check it out i i think at one point he says um Everybody was like, what the fuck are you talking about? You're on this successful show. Don't you want three more years of solid acting work? And don't you want to be a famous television actor? And I was like, no, not really. I would like to parasail into the Cannes Film Festival for the Emoji movie because that's the next new funny thing that will make people laugh. It's yeah, what, so, a, what a quote. <laughs> so depressing. Um, I hope his future is something bigger than the Emoji movie, not that I've seen that. Right. Um, but uh, we, we, we have some more TV news to talk about. Um, there's a Tremor sequel TV series being produced by Blumhouse uh, with Kevin Bacon starring in it. Yeah. Yeah. And I believe he's executive producing it as well. So he's definitely like a, a driving force behind this whole thing. The way I understand it, he approached uh, Jason Blum with the concept of rebooting or maybe doing a sequel uh, feature for tremors like set in the tremors world but they 
uh, eventually sort of revamped the concept into an eight episode miniseries. And we should say Jason Blum is the head of Blumhouse who has done uh, all the found footage horror movies the last few years. Split. Yeah, Paranormal Activity, yeah. The, the Purge, all those yeah. sort of um, super low budget movies that uh, end up making a lot in theaters. So yeah. he's very much, uh, you know, has his finger on the pulse of how to. Um, get the most bang for your buck uh, when it, with a project. And I feel like for Tremors, that's a particularly good fit because the original movie, I think it cost like $11 million in 1990 when it came out. So it wasn't exactly a huge budget uh, picture back then, but it's definitely become a cult classic, you know, sort of, sort of sci-fi uh, mainstay um, on cable and stuff like that. Did you grow up watching this movie? Did you have any particular affinity for Tremors? You know, I, I, I don't have a huge love for Tremors, um, but I'm interested to see what the TV sequel would be, although it has landed at sci-fi, the network, mm-hmm. not the genre. And sci-fi, I feel like, for me, has not produced the best television shows. Sure, there's you know, outliers like Battlestar Galactica, but a lot of the sci-fi channel shows are way too cheesy for me. And I'm hoping maybe that because there's some good talent involved here, maybe it won't be like that. Yeah. I think uh, the story is supposed to be about Kevin Bacon's character, Valentine McKee, uh, picking up 25 years after the events of the first film. So presumably this new show is going to uh, ignore the events of the direct-to-DVD sequels and the the actual sci-fi channel uh, side series that was produced in 2003, I would guess that... Oh God, uh, I completely forgot about that. <laughs> yeah, I would guess that they're going to basically just approach this as a, um, a direct sequel to the original movie. Um, but he, uh, Bacon himself, has said that this is the only character that he's ever played that he was interested in exploring 25 years later. Um, and he apparently doesn't really watch his movies a lot, but he ended up going back and rewatching Tremors for some reason and found that he thought it was actually a pretty good movie and, and became curious about the ultimate fate of his character. So I guess that's the uh, the genesis of this project. And I think, um, you know, there's it, definitely some potential for it, but I'm sort of like you with Sci-Fi Channel. They've never really done anything that's that's fully grabbed me in the way that other networks have. It, it is interesting that they're, it's going to be an eight-episode TV series, or at least first season. And I applaud that because, you know, in an, in an age where the network TV shows are all like, you know, 24 episodes and now Netflix is doing 13 it feels like these shorter seasons, even like when Breaking Bad had a shorter season, uh, it was better. So, I, you know, I, I can easier get on board an eight-episode show than, you know, knowing I'm going to have to watch 20 episodes of a show. Yeah, and, 100%. Uh, and speaking of Breaking Bad, uh, have you been watching Better Call Saul? I have not caught up what? caught up with this show. I watched the whole first season, and I'm one of those people that just, uh, I don't know, I checked out after the first season. There was too much that I was doing at the time, and then I sort of fell behind on season two, and that's that's where I am on the show right now. But I've seen uh, you know all of our breakdowns on the site. Everybody seems to really love the show. You, uh, are you a big fan of it? Yeah, you, you should check back in. You should catch up and binge it because um, I agree. That first season was a little bit slow. Uh, this last season, season three, was... I know I'm going to get flack for this. I think it was better than a lot of the seasons of, of, of Breaking Bad. It wow. Was, it was that good. Um, so I, I consider Breaking Bad to be maybe the greatest show ever 
uh, of, of all time, just period, any genre, anything. And that, so that is like huge, huge, yeah. uh, those are frightened words right there. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it, it might not be as uh, dramatic as Breaking Bad, but they brought back Gus Fring, as you probably know from all the advertising. It's not mm-hmm. really a spoiler. Um, and they're catching up quickly to the Breaking Bad timeline. So I wonder, what, now that they've announced uh, season four will premiere in 2018 with a 10-episode season, um, how close we're going to actually get to the Breaking Bad timeline. Because, I mean, you're not watching it, but they're introducing stuff that is very close to what we see in you know season one of Breaking Bad. Yeah, and I will say the stuff that interested me most about uh, the first season of Better Call Saul was uh, were the flashbacks or flash forwards, I should say, to um, what happened to Saul after you know when he was running the Cinnabon and stuff like that. You know, in the they've sort of flashed around through time a little bit in that first season. I don't know if they kept that alive uh, in subsequent seasons, but that was the stuff where I was like, oh, this is actually picking up the narrative of the show that I originally loved and continuing that story along the timeline instead of just going back and, you know, showing us how this character arrived at that uh, set of circumstances. Yeah. Well, um, they, they do, do do that occasionally. I, I, I think it would be interesting for them if they could actually reach the point where Breaking Bad starts and do a parallel season to that, showing yeah. what Jimmy McGill was going through while all that stuff is happening. Because, Everybody just assumes everything went badly for him. I mean, obviously it did because he ended up in the Cinnabon, but we don't know what happened with any of the people in his life. Um, you know that we weren't privy to that during Breaking right. Bad, um, so that could still happen. And I'd love for this series to catch up and you know the last season be you know him in the Cinnabon and him his redemption. Yeah. Um, I mean that's the only way it can happen, I think. But um, we we're now going to jump into movie news and movie news. Uh, everybody's talking about Superman Red Sun, uh, the King Kong Skull Island director um, Jordan Voight Roberts pitched this to Warner Brothers, and you wrote an article about this on SlashFilm.com. Yes. Uh, what do we know? So uh, essentially, um, Jordan Voke Roberts and Mark Millar, the uh, famed comics creator of things like Wanted and the actual creator of Superman Red Sun, which is a, a 2003 comic miniseries that uh, revolves around or sort of imagines the concept of what if Superman did not land in Smallville, Kansas when he first uh, came to Earth? What if instead he landed in the Soviet Union? What would that have done to uh, the ultimate, you know, character, the ultimate superhero that we all know and love. Um, so, Is that comic, the, by the way, I have not read it. Uh, no, but I've heard really good things about it, and it's oh. been on my list of things to read for a long time. It, it, it is great. It, like, you know, I, I had read comics when I was younger, but when I was starting to get back into comics about, you know, thirteen years ago, this was one of the first graphic novels I picked up, and uh, it's always great to see a different, you know, an alternate dimension version of events and how it would have played out and i always loved uh marvel used to do a series of comics they may still do called what if and it would imagine you know things going a completely different direction and Mm -hmm. i I would actually be surprised if marvel doesn't one day in the movies do something like that because some of those situations were so interesting and so compelling um 
that it would make for a good one and done like anthology movie. Uh, yeah, and that's actually the second part of this whole story as it is. So the first part of the story is that Vogue Roberts talked about how he pitched Warner Brothers a movie version of Red Sun. And they this was like three months ago, a few months ago, he says, and they turned it down. Um, but uh, then Millar came back and was basically talking about how um, now Warner Brothers is accepting pitches from directors or sort of reaching out to other directors and seeing if they have pitches uh, for the same property. So it's sort of a weird situation going on right now. Um, the Skull Island director is basically saying like some of these stories are making it seem like he's one of many people pitching the take. But at the time, he was the only person who went in to Warner Brothers in D.C. and said, this is something that I want to do. They didn't approach him. So he was trying to clarify that. But it seems like in the aftermath of that initial pitch, maybe he inspired them to um, you know, take this property and explore its cinematic potential one day down the line. But one of the things that uh, was sort of rolled up in his pitch was the idea that um, he thinks that uh, in addition to the main narrative uh, timeline of, you know, in the, the example of the DC extended universe, movies like Batman vs Superman and Justice League and Wonder Woman and all these that sort of um, involve the characters that we know sort of coming together and crisscrossing and then going off into their separate movies. Uh, Jordan Vogue Roberts is basically suggesting that there should, while that is going on, while that one timeline is going on, there should simultaneously be uh, other offshoots that are you know, slotted in alternately to the uh, studio's release schedule that are just sort of one-off movies that um, explore totally different things like Red Sun, you know, something that would never really have a sequel that would never, uh, you know, that just totally explores a different angle of the universe or a character within that universe. And that's sort of, in my mind, what I've always thought that uh, Lucasfilm is going to be doing with the Star Wars movies now that they've sort of re you know kickstarted that franchise again um that's the potential in my mind for what the star wars standalone movies will be once they sort of get their footing with uh you know things like han solo which is having its own set of problems right now which you guys talked about in the the previous episode of the show um and you know rogue one sort of all of so far all of those have technically been prequels that sort of fit in with that main star wars narrative but i would love it if uh fit into the actual same canon this is like introducing an alternate reality almost yeah which is yeah, a exactly. little confusing i mean I would, I would like to see dc do this i'd like to see warner brothers do like batman beyond i think that would be an interesting you know future batman uh futuristic gotham city kind of like a yeah. blade runner ish um but uh i don't know it seems like they are trying to play things safe after they took some chances with Zack snyder yeah, for sure. I mean, it, it's definitely an ambitious play, and I don't know if any uh, studio, which are clearly very risk-averse, would be willing to, uh, you know, roll the dice on something like that at this point. Because, you know, we're, you were talking a little bit about this on yesterday's episode with Spider-Man Homecoming. There are people that you've spoken with that aren't even aware that Spider-Man Homecoming doesn't have Andrew Garfield in the role anymore, you know? So, like, the, the idea of us, you know, taking uh, this information and getting excited about it versus the general movie going public doing the same thing and being able to process and sort of separate like, okay, which, which movies are in this universe and which ones are alternate stories and all that. I, I'm not sure if, uh, you know, the, the suits at the studios may be right about that at this, <laughs> at this point, like it may be a little bit too ambitious for right now. 
talking about Hollywood being wrong, Michael Bay's fifth Transformers film, Transformers The Last Night, came out this past weekend. Uh, it was the most expensive movie of the franchise so far, I think, costing yes. a reported $217 million to produce. That doesn't include, you know, millions, maybe hundreds of million dollars to advertise. And the movie came out this past weekend and made $69.1 million in its first five days. Compare that to Dark of the Moon, which made $162 million.6 uh, in its first five days of release. And that is a gigantic failure. So how yeah. is this franchise going to recover? Is the franchise over? Well, I don't think it's over. I think they're too far into production or, or pre-production on the Bumblebee movie. They've sort of announced that. Um, I'm sure you'll recall the Transform- or, uh, Paramount brought in a bunch of writers to form this writer's room that's led by Akiva Goldsman, the guy who wrote Batman and Robin and A Beautiful Mind, to sort of come up with a bunch, generate a bunch of different ideas for future movies. Um and I, I don't know if this is a, a franchise killer, but it's definitely something that is going to give the people at Paramount a lot of pause when they think about where this could go. Uh, because domestically, all of the movies since 2009's Revenge of the Fallen have been earning less and less than the movie that came before it. Um, so it, it's very clear that at least uh, audiences in the U.S. are growing tired of Michael Bay Transformers movies. There is the potential that they could, uh, you know, take to uh, Transformers movies that are directed by somebody other than Michael Bay and maybe that look a little bit different or have a different approach and different feel. But I think one of the big criticisms about Bay's Transformers films is that they're all just this huge, you know, cacophony of noise and gnashing, you know, gnashing teeth and gnashing metal and just all this craziness on the screen. And it's becoming... Uh, you know, it, it's been for years at this point, just uh, empty spectacle, basically. So and that kind of thing works really well for uh, a lot of audiences overseas. But uh, American audiences who, you know, are are typically coming to these movies uh, to see, you know, you would think things like character and story and plot and stuff like that are are growing, you know, uh, less and less, uh, you know, they're, they're basically saying we're not going to put up with this for much longer so i don't know what do you think paramount's endgame should be here i don't know and and you mentioned the writer's room and out of that writer's room came 16 ideas and this movie is based on two of those ideas that are mashed together and i know that you haven't seen the film yet but it feels like two ideas mashed together um it, it is um a mess yeah and i michael bay has said that he's not gonna come back and do another film but this almost feels like I feel like Michael Bay is that, you know, that football player at school that just lost the game and that's haunting him. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I, I think he's going to want to come back and prove himself someday, if not the next one, be it, you know, uh, seven or whatever. Um, yeah. So we'll see. Uh, do, do, do you think that this series is done after like are they going to just do a bunch of spin-off films or do you do you think this series will continue to go, live on so i think this is one of paramount's key franchises right so they're definitely not going to just give it up um i think there will be transformers movies in some form 
uh, maybe in, per- in perpetuity, you know, for as long as we live. Uh, but I do think that they will after this, because th- there are some, uh, you know, industry analysts who are speculating that this movie might end up with only $625 million worldwide. And considering the previous two films both made over a billion dollars each, that would be a pretty catastrophic drop, right? So uh, they're basically saying that there's going to be a lot of, um, you know, oversight and maybe a tighter leash for the upcoming uh, Transformers movies, whatever form those may take. We've got the Bumblebee movie, and then yeah, all the other ones that are supposedly continuing on this main storyline. Those might be revamped. I mean, that's a lot of speculation at this point because uh, we're basically just coming out of the opening weekend for the last night, and we we aren't entirely certain how all of this is going to shake out yet. But um, those numbers don't lie, and uh, and Paramount cannot be thrilled with their most expensive movie in the Transformers universe bringing in potentially the least amount of all of them in the past 10 years. So uh, we'll see how it goes. I'm actually really interested in Travis Knight's uh, Bumblebee spinoff movie. It being set in the 80s, being emblem-esque and starring, having a female lead Mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, this movie was kind of marketed around with that trailer and it doesn't succeed. You know, she disappears for a whole hour of the movie. Um, I I, I think that that could be interesting to see the spinoff. I'm not sure I'm interested in the Transformers saga movies any longer. Um, But that is the end of our news segment. Uh, Ben, where can we find more of your work? You can find me on Twitter at Ben Pears and you can find me writing every day at SlashFilm.com. Thanks, Ben. This is just a sample of the stories you can find at SlashFilm.com. So if you want more on any of these stories, if you want to find more stories, go to SlashFilm.com. And now time for the feature presentation. Today, we have Rob Hunter on to talk about the best animated kids movies you probably have never seen. Rob Hunter is an editor and writer for FilmSchoolRejects.com, and you see him every two weeks on SlashFilm writing the best movies you've probably never seen articles. Uh, which are some of my favorite uh, freelance articles on the site because they just have bonker recommendations. Like, you know, I go to Netflix for recommendations and there's always movies I've seen. This gives me some some stuff to hunt for. So, so, so Rob, are you there? Yes, I am. What spawned this? Despicable Me 3? Um, yeah, I, I try and, I mean, I try and time these. I use these every two weeks and I try and time them to something big hitting theaters. Um, just to give like kind of an alternative, but um, not like similar in theme, but like you know more so similar in, in some particular aspect. So yeah, Despicable Me Three is hitting theaters, and uh, I haven't seen it yet. I'm sure it's a fine film, um, but I kind of wanted to like uh, peel peel back you know the layers a little bit and look look at some movies, some animated movies beyond uh, the. Fart I think are for kids. Yeah, beyond the fart jokes, beyond the uh, you know the the, the multiplex um, movies that maybe didn't get as as fair of a shake. Or uh, they just you know didn't didn't get the notice here in the states, however it might be, that I still that I still think are worthwhile. So for this week, I picked six animated movies that I think are one great movies, but two, I would argue for each of them. Yes, even Plague Dogs, <laughs> that's worthwhile okay. to show to children. <laughs> wow. Uh, let's start out with Mr. Bug Goes to Town. This is a 1941 animated uh, film, right? Yep. Yeah, it, it's 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 kind of like a precursor to uh, Bugs Life. I mean, it's, it's not related at all, but other than the fact that it, it is about a community of bugs struggling with you know v- various trials and tribulations, uh, and then it, you know comes to a happy ending as you expect it would. But it's, it's kind of a fun, bright, colorful. Uh, 
hoppy movie, and I don't say that just because one of the characters' name is Hoppity. Um, it's just it's, it's energetic, and uh, it's got villains, you know, both of like of the Donald Trump style, which is like this your rich landowner who's giving them grief. He's a beetle, um, and then there's also the humans, and they're more kind of a faceless. We don't really see their faces. We, we see their feet walking back and forth. We see the litter they leave behind, um, the damage they cause, that, and that they're completely you know unaware of. So it's, it's kind of a, a, a dual message there. But, the, you know, the group comes together. They, they sing a song. <laughs> they have a, have a fun adventure. Um, and it's just kind of a, just a, a nice little movie that is a simple message, but it's energetic and, like I said, you know, exciting from game to end. Well, that sounds like one to check out. Uh, how about Animal Olympics? Is that how you pronounce it? Oh, are you saying you've never seen Animal Olympics? This, you know this is a I, classic. I didn't think I did see this, but I think this is like something that was on HBO back in the day. Yes, it played on HBO. Like, I mean, in my, in my you know memory, it played like every damn day. Um, but I think it was more likely every, every few days. But I remember it well throughout the eighties. Um, I remember even seeing it into the nineties sometimes too. But it's it's just it's it's probably the the most straightforward of all the movies here in that there's no you know real themes or messages or, or heavy you know uh, layers to it. It's just the Olympics, but with you know wildlife participating in the sports and also serving as the commentators it's very funny it serves up a lot of puns a lot of wordplay you know with the animals and the characters and, the, and such we see them performing the different sports there's underdogs you know there's champions um, there's medals awarded there's a love story that develops between a goat and a uh, and a leopard um, who are on this you know long distance run um, it just is is very entertaining um, that you sit there and you kind of giggle at and laugh at and smile at and then you know, want to watch it again? I mean, I hadn't seen it in years since seeing it as a kid, and it's every bit as entertaining to me now, like decades later. Can you find this anywhere? Uh, officially, no. <laughs> you can you can find you can find it on YouTube, um, which is obviously is not an official way to find things, yeah. but it, it's there. Uh, I, I'm there. There are DV, I don't know if there's DVDs. There's VHS tapes out there. If people have uh, you know VHS players, um, they're not cheap to come by, but I mean you can find them. Um, and I'm still waiting for somebody to actually put it out proper on like a, a, a new edition. But it's great because you've got, I mean, it's voiced by like Gilda Radner, uh, Billy Crystal, Harry Shearer. They're the one, the main people doing a lot of the voices of these characters. And it's just, it's just a fun movie, especially if you were, you know, grew up in that time period because you, you've got the Saturday Night Live connection on top of just the, the pure fun of the wordplay. Like I said, it's, it's just, it's just very, very pleasant. Okay. Let's get to the controversial option here, here in this, this article, The Plague Dogs. It's a 1982 <laughs> film and it's gotten you a lot of uh, flack in the slash home comments so tell us <laughs> why should we be watching and, and the play dogs and why are people upset that you put this in a kid's well, movie here's, here's the thing yeah so the category the, 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 the piece is movies for kids and so no one seems to think this is for kids now in my defense two things one I, I did say in the piece you know they don't blame me if your kids end up having nightmares and two I never really specify you know what the age of these kids are I'm talking about so like I wouldn't show this to a five year old um, I mean, they wouldn't appreciate it, and it'd be terrible for them. But I'm talking like like a nine-year-old, a ten-year-old. I mean, to me, they're still kids. But this is the kind of stuff that they should be able to handle. Um, I mean, you, it's a case-by-case basis. I mean, obviously, you you know if your kid can handle it or not. And ideally, when you watch movies with your kids, uh, you're having conversations about them. Rob, and I think that this is an important. <laughs> do you have kids? Well, I think it's clear I don't in the way I'm talking about what people should be doing. <laughs> okay, so just know but, um, that when you take these recommendations from someone who doesn't have kids. 
Okay, but so why I know what we... kids are, and I've seen them in the real world. <laughs> I, I, just, I just think that this movie is it's. I mean, it's harrowing. It's it's sad. Um, there's no denying that. It's it's a depressing film. Um, the ending, you, it, it's arguable. Uh, it's got that great indie indie style ending that you could interpret it, you know, either either one way or the other, and one's very positive and one's very negative. Um, but I mean, it, it is a movie that deals with with death. It, it deals with you know animal cruelty, uh, which itself leads to uh, empathy towards animals, um, uh, you know, survival, friendship. I think these are all themes that are worth discussing with with your kids. And again, not every kid can handle it and would would be interested. But if you have a kid who is, you know, tackling you know more than just you know the fart jokes, you know, the minions, the which I'm not knocking. They are they, they serve a purpose. But if you have a child who's interested in more than that. I think it's a worthwhile film. Um, it's based on a novel. I mean, the kid wouldn't be able to read the book, but I mean, it's it's the kind of thing that I saw when I was a kid, and then one of the things that led me into reading, you know, deeper, denser books. Uh, Richard Adams, he also wrote Watership Down, which was made into another great movie. So, I, I think there's value here. Um, again, it's arguable, and I wouldn't tell somebody else what to do with their own kid, but if your kid's nine, ten, and not, you know, incapable of handling serious themes and having discussions and if you're okay having this talk with the child i think it's a fantastic film and i think that would be you know educational and and helpful for their uh growth and the plague dogs is on amazon via fandor um we have time for one more so which out of the the remainder on your list would you like to talk about Oh, all three are great, but I, I'm going to go with uh, Jack and the Cuckoo Clock Heart. It's the most recent from 2013. It's a French movie, uh, CG animation. It's kind of a, a wonderful mix of, to me, of like you know Tim Burton kind of goth style, but with the Ray Bradbury um, kind of fantasy element. Um, it's, it's a story about a boy whose heart freezes when he's born, and so in order to save his life, Owen puts a cuckoo clock heart in to keep it ticking, to keep it going. But he can't stress it out too much, and you know, anger, uh, you know, frustration, and love are the things that'll test it and break the heart or break the, the clock. And so it's about him experiencing love and challenging that. And it's just a gorgeous movie um, that again deals with some themes. Um, maybe again not for a five or six year old, but again for a ten, eleven, twelve year old. Um, and I think it's it's also just a beautiful film because it's got song, it's a musical, so there's songs and there's like you know song numbers in there. Um, it's just a very sweet, very beautiful, um, highly engaging movie with a soundtrack that ends up sticking in your head, even the songs that are in French. <laughs> I don't know what they're saying, but it's just incredibly catchy. Um, and it ends on a note that you you're not going to see you know an American animated film end on, which is is something to watch for. And if you want to read the rest of Rob's list, you can go to SlashFilm.com, and his column is every week on the site. It's uh, the greatest movies you've never seen. Uh, where can we find more of your work, Rob? Uh, a couple things here at SlashFilm. Otherwise, my main home, where I put up most of my stuff, my reviews, my other types of lists, my other types of features are over at Film School Rejects. Thanks for coming on, Rob. Thanks for having me. Remember, this is just one of the features you can find on SlashFilm.com today. You can also find our weekly slash answers column where we attempt to answer one question as a staff. Uh, this week, we enter the best musical needle drop in movies with special guest Edgar Wright. Um, and mine is Tiny Dancer from Almost Famous. Check it out on the site. We also have uh, Dolan Rawell has two articles on the site, The Greatest Music Moments in Edgar Wright's Filmography and What Batman and Robin Can Teach Us 
on its 20th anniversary. Check out all that and more on SlashFilm.com. And I promise, guys, I promise we're going to get this under 30 minutes. This will be shorter. Uh, please continue to send your feedback to at SlashFilm, DM us at SlashFilm on Twitter, or send an email at orfilms at gmail.com. Thank you. Baseball fans, BetMGM is giving you the chance to win a prize every day during the baseball season. Step into the batter's box for BetMGM Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. Pick any area of the strike zone and take your best swing. If you get a single, double, triple, or home run, you'll receive a prize. Smash a home run to collect a bonus bet on us. Just log into your BetMGM Sports account to get started. Then visit your promotion section to access the Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. You'll score a prize if you hit a single, double, triple, or home run. There's nothing more exciting than going yard. So swing for the fences with the king of sportsbooks. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. Must be 21 plus and present in Ohio. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards vary depending on the market and expire 24 hours from issuance. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park.